Throughout my life, I was treated pretty badly by some people um, because of my disabilities and um, because I was, you know, quote unquote, different. A lot of the time, I think people don't realize, but when sometimes people call the police in cases of gender-based violence, both the woman and her abuser end up getting charged. So the woman ends up getting criminalized as well. And so who have we failed the most in this country? Who have we harmed left, right, and center? Well, it is Indigenous women, first and foremost. And so what are we doing with the quote-unquote Indian problem that we know of from residential schools? Oh, we're locking them up again. Of Canada's total adult female population, 4.3% are Indigenous and 3% are Black. However, racialized women are the fastest growing population in provincial and federal prisons. Indigenous women, in particular, are the single fastest growing population in Canadian prisons. A 2021 Statistics Canada report says that in 2020 and 2021, Indigenous women made up 42% of female custody admissions in provincial and territorial institutions. That number is 40% in federal custody admissions. The overrepresentation of Black and Indigenous women in prisons is a manifestation of the systemic racism embedded within our justice system. For those advocating on behalf of racialized women in Canadian prisons, the solution isn't reforming the system, it's circumventing it entirely. This is the Creating Communities of Care podcast. My name is Cheyenne Labrador. So the Elizabeth Fry Society works with criminalized women, and that can be at any point from when people are charged or their first interaction with police right up through trial and to reintegration back into the community. This is Mukiza, a coordinator at the Elizabeth Fry Society of mainland Nova Scotia. She works to find new supports for African Nova Scotian women facing incarceration with a particular focus on healing. If I were supporting either women who are at risk of criminalization or have been criminalized. This is Sarah. She's the manager of the Gender-Based Violence Strategy at EFRI. Sarah engages specifically with Indigenous women in her daily work, but also manages the Creating Communities of Care project within EFRI. The minute I walked in those doors, I started to see the incredible need, the oppression that was happening behind the walls, the lack of transparency. I had a window into things that most Canadians never get a chance to see, which is that behind walls, there was no rule of law and there was no access to justice. And this is Emma Halpern. She is the executive director of the Elizabeth Fry Society of mainland Nova Scotia. In this episode, we'll learn from Sarah and Mukisa the kind of impactful work that's happening at the Elizabeth Fry Society. And from Emma, we'll hear how the injustice faced by one incarcerated woman reflects growing trends across the sector. I like to draw, I paint, I like to make things. I try to do um, embroidery, things like that. Shauna, an Elizabeth Fry client and Communities of Care participant, has agreed to share her story in the hopes that another woman may hear her words and understand that if she's a victim of violence, it is absolutely no fault of her own. I write poetry um, and I find that that's very healing in itself. I know 
that speaking about these things can be difficult, but I feel like it's beneficial because like then it can help somebody else um, who's been through something like that. And I just would want them to remember that it's it, it it's not their fault. So how does a creative, sensitive and gentle woman like Shauna become incarcerated? For too many racialized women in Canadian prisons, their journey starts as a victim, but through the justice system, they become criminalized and eventually end up incarcerated. Another critical fact to consider in the criminalization of victimized women is that for many women facing abuse in a relationship, it isn't their first time. Emma explains how her client was absorbed into this cycle at an early age and how the control of her childhood abusers came to shape her adulthood. She's African Nova Scotian and Indigenous, very young, uh, incredible uh, experiences of childhood trauma. You know, everything you could ever imagine, um, from poverty to every type of abuse you could imagine. Certainly a lack of ability to have a proper education uh, and to have proper supports. And was trafficked at a very young age as a teenage girl, you know, involved in the sex trade and taken to an, uh, Ontario and exploited. So trafficked and exploited, she was a teenager. It was, it was entirely illegal, but no no one went to look for her uh, and no one ever helped her or I, I mean, no one in any kind of system ever helped her or supported her. And so she experienced tremendous abuse from men as a, as a small child all the way up and then into her teens was trafficked further abuse, abuse at the hands of violent pimps in her life, and then ends up in a very abusive relationship with the man who becomes, who is her co-accused, who is extremely violent and abusive towards her. I was attending a um, survivor circle for the Mass Casualty Commission as representing the Creating Communities of Care project and just speaking with um, survivors and also facilitators from Avalon and such. And somebody told their story of like their husband would often abuse them. And like she knew the tone of voice when she was going to like get hurt. And like he would have like, I'm pretty sure she said that he would have like a bat. And she's like, yeah, but it was also like back and forth. Cause like I would grab a can of peas and like hurt him with it and stuff. So it was both of us. And the facilitator looked at her and she was like, and you think that's equal? You think that's a fair fight? So I think women often generally do think of themselves as like a perpetrator and they don't even understand that there's an imbalance mm -hmm. in that violence. Yeah. One thing about the justice system is the justice system thinks that's fair. And that's the stories that we've had with the women that I've been working with on TV court is our stories of, you know, someone has uh, the lukewarm cup of coffee that they threw at their partner's feet and it and it hit the the liquid hit their feet and that's assault with a weapon or, you know, throwing the loaf of bread and that's you know, an assault. And every woman that I've worked with in DV court has been a victim of, of violence at some point, whether it's that relationship or whether it's a relationship prior, there are some really significant traumas there, but the justice system sees it as fair. They do not see a woman or a man as differently. Same thing with an Indigenous person or an African Nova Scotian person. They're, they're not looking at the store and they're not looking at the person. They're looking at these things on a paper that equate to assault or whatever the charge is. Yeah, that's what I see in the prison as well of like, people and 
especially when they're dependent on their partner for like providing housing and such, like they live with their partner. When they get upset with them, they'll just call the police because they know they know that the police will come and like charge them because they're an indigenous woman, essentially. And so it's easy to get them criminalized and get them back into the system. So I think the process of becoming victimized is very complicated, of course, and varies by each person and their experience. In the case of Emma's friend and client, a lifetime spent in abusive environments eventually led her to a profoundly violent partner who would eventually become her co-accused. In this uh, young woman's case, one of the things that came up multiple times was like, well, why didn't you go to the police? Why didn't you report? Why did you stay with him after the fact? Why did you help him after the fact? Why did you do all of these things? Why did you do what he told you to do that that day? Why did you go with him? Uh, Which demonstrated to me just a deep lack of understanding of what that the lived experience of this young woman was uh, and why someone in her shoes, despite how smart and vivacious and amazing she was, would have felt she had no choice. And I, you know, I think we have this idea of no choice as being, you know, and I put that in in sort of air quotes, no choice as being sort of this, these, this TV made for TV movie of this like pretty blonde girl with a gun to her head being told you must do this. And that that is the only form of no choice that we fully understand. And there's all kinds of racism embedded in that and, and sort of discrimination embedded in, in, who is a good victim and who is not. And and this is a theme we see over and over again at Creating Communities of Care and why it's so important that EFRI is part of the team. For Shauna, navigating services in a time of great need was an even greater challenge. Had she been able to access the right services earlier, Shauna believes she may have never had to face incarceration at all. Hers is another in a long history of racialized and disabled women in need that end up becoming victimized by a system that does not believe them. I'm someone who lives with a couple of disabilities. Um, I have mild cerebral palsy, that's like pretty much the main one. And um, a lot of the maltreatment was in my early childhood so it's something I still work on and I kind of consciously work on. Having disabilities is a big barrier because people don't really understand or know where to put you or they try to put you in this box or that box and everyone's an individual so it's kind of confusing and upsetting when people try to do that to you. I found that I was often having to talk to mobile crisis or go to the eMERGE sometimes. And a lot of the times in both of those settings with the people who are supposed to care for you, it was kind of like brushed off or pushed aside or, you know, not taken seriously. And that kind of like breeds a little bit of animosity towards the healthcare system sometimes because like I was going through something so I really could have used a little bit more support with those services so that the incarceration and everything didn't happen. Shauna's experience highlights the challenges when the healthcare and criminal justice systems intersect, as well as the negative consequences that usually follow. In the case of Emma's friend, 
Her whole life, she'd been overlooked or mistreated by the systems put in place to defend women in her position. The experiences of these two women is that of broken trust. Here's Emma again. Over and over and over again at Fry, we see women who commit very violent crimes, often murders, always, every single time with a with a domestic partner, with a with a with a boyfriend, a husband, a partner. Um, I get a new call. Somebody's inside, be accused of murder, and the very first question is, do they have a partner who's a co-accused of uh, a male partner? And ninety nine percent of the time, that is the case. In discussing the intersection of gender-based violence and the criminal justice system, there are so many nuances to consider before passing judgment. Somebody who is experiencing violence by their partner, let's say, for example, there's there's a various levels of, of, of why they would become criminalized, but sometimes it's just luck or a chance. Sometimes it's just the neighbor called. How it works in Nova Scotia, we have a pro-arrest, pro-charge policy. So that means that if somebody calls in with a domestic violence incident, that means the police at the time has to charge somebody. So there's been a few things I've heard and they will arrest the louder person. Um, You know, us as women, you know, sometimes we can be loud or we can be quote unquote dramatic. <laughs> you know, there are there are definitely some things as women and as um, African Nova Scotia women or Indigenous women that are experiences of forms of racism as well. And so then you become charged. And then what happens now is that I'm not only being victimized by the partner, now I'm being victimized by my system. So the justice system and being a victim of the justice system is very common, again, especially with African Nova Scotian and Indigenous women. And there are very few supports and the way people feel treated when they are now labeled as an offender is very different. I remember I did have one incident where I had a woman who was in that situation. She was a victim of very, very high risk assault charges. And I got to a point where she was charged, but then there was a situation where they were in the same area and she called the police and, you know, may not have completely told the entire story accurate. And when it started coming out, I remember sitting in a room with a police officer, the Crown, and her, and they were berating her. They were just being very, very disrespectful. And I remember it was just about to get up and I was going to say, we're leaving. And I just said, don't forget, she is a victim. Like, she is still a victim. That's why people don't come forward to because they know that they're not going to be believed or if the story isn't as clean and clear cut and dry, that they know they're going to be treated a certain different way from the system as well. Um, So people are just living in fear of being able to even tell their story. In 2021, 50% of women in federal custody are Indigenous. And that is wild because they do not make up 50% of the population. Yeah, it is really crazy when you compare that to the population of Indigenous people in Canada, which is only 4 or 5%. So how are 50% of the women in prison Indigenous? The answer is racism. Yeah. Indigenous women are the number one growing. It's, it's skyrocketing. And again, we have to stop pretending like 
the victimization of indigenous women and the criminalization of women are different. It's not different. They are directly related. And that is why we are seeing a high number of indigenous women being victimized continuously by the justice system at this point. Yeah, I was in the prison just yesterday and this woman spoke up about the history of abuse that she suffered through in her marriages and just the intimate partner violence that she's suffered from her partners. But she said the worst abusive relationship I've ever been in is the one with Correctional Service Canada. In the face of these systemic failures and abuses, EFRI is focused on providing alternatives to the justice system for Black and Indigenous women to keep them out of prisons, which have proven to only be damaging to individuals and communities. The myth of prison rehabilitation cuts to the heart of the contradictions the women from EFRI see in the justice system every day. People don't really see how little rehabilitation yes. is actually a part of our prisons, which is none, by the way. Yes. Prisons do not rehabilitate people. It is non-existent. There are community organizations who do go in and provide programming, but outside of that, the prison itself is not providing that. I think we need to really think about if we want to spend $2.7 billion a year just to traumatize people more by keeping them in prison. In an institution designed to isolate and punish, there can be no healing. Punishment doesn't work. Deterrence also doesn't work. Not working. We wouldn't have criminalized people. We wouldn't have people in jail exactly. if deterrence worked. Exactly. It doesn't work. In protecting the public and all those things don't work, who are we protecting? And also, I would love for people to just look at what people are incarcerated for long term. It is a lot of nonviolent crimes. A lot of nonviolent crimes and a lot of just like you can just see how much poverty plays a role into oh, totally leading people into the criminal justice system. And so if we just reinvested that money yeah. so that people didn't have to live in such a desperate state, then we would have better money to support people and for our communities and to actually get people help with addictions or the other needs that they have. So that's why we can't keep using this system to support and foster rehabilitation. If that's the conversation we want to have, then that's not it. We have to start thinking of what truly rehabilitation and reintegration means. Yeah. And I think that's why we have our program called Creating Communities of Care, because there's no room for care in our criminal justice system. And because that's what works. We know this. We know this is what works. We exactly. know that communities, that family, that culture, that's what works to support people. Creating communities of care tries to build communities and build systems outside of the criminal justice system because we feel like you can't train away, like no matter how much cultural competency we try to put into the system and trying to get people who have been trained um, basically have bias within how they approach people, um, training them to see us as Black women or as Indigenous women as human. We just don't think that's realistic. You can't train somebody to yeah. be compassionate or to be empathetic of somebody that they already think of is as guilty. It's for these reasons and more that the Elizabeth Fry Society is a firmly abolitionist organization. They believe that the solutions to these systemic problems don't exist in reform. True change starts with the abolishment of prisons from our society. Because we feel like you can't reform racism. You can't reform a system that was built on racism 
and genocide. Going back to the perfect victim, first of all, the perfect victim is white. The perfect victim is not black or indigenous. Um, so automatically when the police are called, then they have these stereotypes. They have these biases of, oh, what did that person do? Oh, well, how did they play a role into what happened here? And I guess that's how people end up being overcriminalized and getting overcharged because they're already not seen as a victim. system that we have as far as the indigenous population like this this system was created to beat the Indian out of the child like that is what the system is for and to separate black families um, by criminalizing the father and having the mother live in poverty and then also just over surveilling our people yeah and I, I find this the narrative the perfect victim is interesting because it's completely true it's it's the damsel in distress and it's somebody who is grateful and soft-spoken and meek and mild and that's that's not what our women represent our indigenous women our black women are that is not that they're very strong <laughs> yeah and i love talking to paula who's the executive director of mlsn as well about how she talks about you know our indigenous women too and you know we're the providers of the family and that's the historic and cultural significance of women in our cultures is very strong this is a survivor and a strong and brilliant and incredible woman. And despite all of these failures, is still, you know, standing and strong and seeking support. And I smile because I am so deeply proud of who she is. You know, this is someone I'm very close to. If I could get her out tomorrow, I would have her live with me in a second. And I have given her my word. And unless something terrible happens to me, I will be there the day she's let out. The Elizabeth Fry Society works directly with incarcerated women, serving as advocates and champions, guiding clients through the confusing twists and turns of the system. Luckily for Shauna, E. Fry was able to have her released into the organization's care, sparing her from further institutionalization. I first became introduced to E. Fry because I had a lot of mental health trouble prior to becoming incarcerated and I I kind of had made a phone call to Efry and spoke to them for a while and then I was like really not well at the time and then I got released to Efry and met these wonderful people it really changed my life because I was scared while I was incarcerated. I was very scared. I didn't know exactly everything that was going on and it was terrifying. So it was really, really beneficial to be introduced to Efry. It really was. Sometimes, support is just explaining the process of the justice system to someone who finds themselves facing it. We are able to just provide people with constant support. So they know that like, they'll be able to reach out to Shanice every Tuesday and know that they can support them and even just taking them to the grocery store, taking them shopping, taking them out with their kids. Like just having that support, having somebody to call so we do provide like one-on-one -on -one assistance, counseling as well. 
And then we also provide uh, different programs. My program is called Women for Change. That is actually a DV court EFRI program that's been offered way before I got around. I am very passionate about boundaries and conflict management and understanding anger and all this stuff. So important. We need these teachings. Yeah. All of this bettering yourself content, please provide to me. Because More of I, it. I, I love it. And I've gotten a lot of really good feedback on the program. And I've had people say like, oh, I've done this program at this location, at this location, at this location. Why is yours so beneficial. And I tell people because I've been that angry. Honestly, I've been there. These are things that I genuinely do every day that sound a little silly, but they work. That's one of my programs that I've adapted to call Nanasi, which means I know myself in Mi'kmaq, which I think is a really beautiful sentiment because if I could help you learn about yourself, that's what I want you to learn. I don't want you to learn any breathing techniques or any coping strategies. I want you to know a bit about yourself a little bit, a little bit more. I feel like it's really, really empowering to create a bond with other women and to support them through what they're going through, you know, the best that we can because I'm most certainly not a professional, but I do care. I have a lot of empathy, and I I think that women supporting women is a really good thing and something that we need to do more in society. I feel like women need to lift each other up instead of bring each other down, and there shouldn't be competition, and people should, like, you know, just just straighten each other's crowns. I think that's really what is important. So I feel like I'm more in a role where I'm thinking about like legal issues and how I can support that way. So yeah. like one of my clients, she isn't allowed to see her children right now. And she does have help from ISANS and like helping her apply for legal aid and um, just going through all these legal processes to help her with that problem. But um, she also like doesn't speak English. So mm -hmm. she's going through these processes and she doesn't know what's going on. And she's calling me like, hey, like, when can I see my children? Like, why can't I see my children? It's been so long. And so part of creating communities of care is like making sure that people understand the system's processes. So like, OK, you went to this appointment the other day and you filled out all of these forms. And that's so that you can eventually have a legal framework in place so that you can see your children like explaining every single one of those pieces because a lot of the times people are just focused on getting the job done. They're not actually focused on the person and their mm -hmm. understanding of it. So I kind of come in and help people with that and say like, if you need me to talk to your worker, if you need me to reach out to this person and that person, I'm here to support you. So just like having an advocate, having somebody in your corner, I feel like is like what I bring to creating communities of care. We talk a lot about hope and about, you know, what we can do over these next number of years to, to keep hope alive and to remind her that her life is not over. It is communities of care, ultimately, that is keeping that hope alive, that is connecting to her and keeping her connected to our community, that is providing her with an awareness she isn't forgotten and that she does matter and that what she's needing to heal is available and that we will continue to, to provide those supports and those relationships. We have exhausted the sort of regular means to appeal the initial sentence, and so we are now left with 
thinking about things like wrongful conviction or asking the minister to consider a release at some point. And so it will at some point take probably some public pressure. We are still early days on that and and likely, you know, we're a number of years away from starting that process. I have committed to her and I'm committing here publicly that I'm not giving up uh, on trying to get her out before the 25 years because this was wrong. What happened in this case was wrong. It is still wrong. We have a young woman sitting in behind these walls that shouldn't be there. That's all for this episode of Creating Communities of Care. In our next episode, we take a deep dive into culturally specific programming, what it looks like in practice, how it's conceived, and the promising results it yields in participants. If you heard your own story throughout this podcast and are interested in learning more about the Elizabeth Fry Society of Mainland Nova Scotia or another partner organization, check out the show notes for links and resources. If you are facing gender-based violence in your own life, know that it isn't your fault and there are those who will help you. My name is Cheyenne Labrador. Walalan.